Good morning. You're right. There is a good crowd. <laughs> Didn't realize what was behind me. Appreciate so much you being here today and being a part of worship with us collectively as we worship a God that is uh, entirely and solely uh, worthy of all the praise. Um, I want to say before I get into the subject this morning that I was remiss last week. <laughs> I don't know why I had announcements, but uh, should have been more forward thanking the congregation for our time spent on Saturday, uh, right prior to that, a little over a week ago. We appreciate that very much and enjoyed it and hope you did too uh, if you were able to be there. Um, this morning I want to look at um, a topic, it's not going to go as deep as it may appear. <laughs> you can get into the book of Revelations and there's a lot of symbols and signs and, and a lot of things you could talk about. I just want to back up and look at the delivering of messages to these seven churches that we read about in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And I'm actually going to look, I'm actually going to do this in a series, I'm not saying that um, consecutively in order that I'm going to do that every time I speak, but I want to go through these ultimately and eventually through each one of these churches and the message and the message from the Lord to them. I want to look at I want to look at what their historic um, and cultural background was I think that may help to to picture each of the situations in connection with what the Lord was instructing these churches I want to look at that I want to look at what the Lord praised them for and if he was critical of them I want to look at that also and then make application for us and I think there's lessons in every one of these for us today the first the first of these is in Revelation 2 beginning in verse 1 to about verse 7 this is the first message and it was to the church at Ephesus we know a lot about Ephesus because we read a lot about uh, Paul's work there and others their work in Ephesus and we're going to mention some of that <clears throat> the first here of the seven letters to the churches, you can hear me struggling my voice already, can't you? <laughs> I appreciate your prayers also on that behalf. Um, it's back, it's just still not strong. So bear with me, we're going to make it through this. The first of the seven letters to the churches of Asia here is to the church in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was perhaps at the time the greatest city in the Roman province of Asia. Uh, by New Testament times, it had grown, historians say, to at least about 250,000 people. It was situated at the mouth of the Caister River on the Gulf of the Aegean Sea. Uh, Ephesus was an important commercial and export center for Asia with three major trade routes converging at the city harbor. Ephesus was a free city. 
They were granted by Rome the right of self-government. It boasted a major stadium uh, capable of seating some 25,000 people, a marketplace, a theater, going from the harbor to the heart of the city was a magnificent avenue, um, 35 feet wide and lined with columns. It also boasted one of the wonders of the ancient world, the temple of the pagan god Artemis or Diana. The temple of Artemis at Ephesus was built around 550 B.C. So just keep in, in, in mind the time frame here. 550 B.C. and it was about four times the size of the Parthenon. <clears throat> Ephesus was part of the kingdom of Pergamum, which Attalus III bequeathed to Rome in 133 B.C. The Goths destroyed both the city and the temple in AD 262. So a lot of time has transpired now. And neither the city or the temple recovered from or recovered back to its former glory that it had had. Um, the emperor Constantine, however, uh, erected a new public bath, and Arcadius rebuilt at a higher level the street from the theater to the harbor, named after him, the Arcadi Arcadian. The emperor Justinian built the magnificent basilica of St. John in the 6th century. But by the early Middle Ages, the city was no longer useful as a port and fell into decline. Now, there's much information in the Bible about the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus had its start, you might recall, in the books of, book of Acts where Paul reasoned with the Jews and left Priscilla and Aquila there in Acts 18, 19. Um, in fact, you might just jot down Acts 18, 19, and 20 in your notes and take a read of that and read all of the accounts here. But I'm going to skim through this uh, real quick. Um, Paul left Priscilla and Aquila there. He came back to Ephesus and found some disciples who had not received the Holy Spirit. Come to find out they had been baptized into John's baptism. And so when they were baptized in the name of the Lord, um, the Holy Spirit came upon them. That's Acts 19, 1-7. Paul spoke in the synagogue for three months, verse 8, and then in the school of Tyrannus for two years, um, verses 9-10. through 10. Now, there was a disturbance, you might recall, uh, because of the idol makers to the goddess Artemis or Diana, <coughs> pardon me, who brought the Ephesians wealth, of course, through their making silver images of this idol or the, of this goddess. And so they were concerned that their business is about to be gone, right? They knew that if Paul continued and his helpers continued to preach Jesus, their business was going to be no more. And so, um, when the anger that Demetrius incited reached a, a fever pitch, so to speak, the rioters were said to have rushed into the city's theater 
dragging in Paul's travel companions, Gaius and Aristarchus. Excavations have uncovered the theater, which is set into a steep hillside at Ephesus. Massive in scale, the semicircular Roman theater held 25,000 seats and was one of the largest in the ancient world. I'm going to get to that, the combined. And that's a picture of the theater. The best I could do blowing it up on uh, PowerPoint here, but many of you have studied that and seen that, uh, perhaps. Um, this is a bucket list item of mine, trip, that I've just wanted to be able to do. A tour, they, they offer them a tour of these seven sites, these seven churches and the historical sites. In the political climate there is today, I don't know that I'll ever do that. I just haven't made the choice to do that. But I would love to be able to, to go to these places. I don't know what it is. It's, it's just intriguing to me to be able to study and to be able to walk these areas that the Apostle Paul did in his missionary journeys. It's quite a theater. And we pull it up, and it, this is the very theater that supposedly the rioters uh, had went to that you read about. And you can read about that in secular history. You can read about it in the Bible. Paul left Timothy here at Ephesus, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 3. He says goodbye to the elders of Ephesus at Miletus before going to Jerusalem, where he warns the elders there, and take note of this, he warns them that wolves are going to come in among you. Meaning people that are going to come and try to deceive. They would be false apostles. Okay? So that's some of the history of it. He also wrote to the Ephesians a long letter after which it was clear that they were uh, a mature congregation at this time. Traditionally, it is also thought that the Apostle John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, settled at Ephesus. Some two and a half centuries after Paul preached in Ephesus, the city hall was converted into a church and later used by the Council of Ephesus, which in 431 A.D. formally accepted the teaching that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. 400 and something years later. I just find some of that history intriguing. But what message did the Lord give to Ephesus? And that's where we're wanting to get to. Here we are in the book of Revelation at the command of Jesus. John writes the first of these seven letters to the churches or to the church here at Ephesus. We need to keep in mind that the words in front of us are the words of Jesus <clears throat> when we read this. Notice how the letter begins. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. This image by the way, if you back up to chapter 1, was explained in verse 20, Revelation 1.20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, the messengers. And the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. So it's explained to us what we're talking about here. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, we're seeing that he's holding the seven stars in his right hand. I guess this would be his right. Who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Notice that Jesus is walking among the candlesticks. <clears throat> the description of Christ here is very instructive. Christ holds the angels. He controls the angels, if you will. He's in charge. Christ walks among the churches, which are the candlesticks. And actual, uh, the Greek word for that actually is candelabra or lampstand, as opposed to a single candlestick. That's how King James um, interpreted that or translated that. But many other versions talk about the lampstand, which I think is more accurately depicted. Um, he walks, these words of Christ, as he's walking among these lampstands, I want you to think about it. He's the head of the church. He loves his bride. He loves the church very much. And so he is walking among them. That's a humbling thought in and of itself. Did you catch what Jesus calls his church? I'm going to repeat it. It's a lampstand. This is true not only for Ephesus, but also for the other six churches mentioned here. Um, it's true for all the churches throughout the Roman Empire and indeed the world. It's true for us and for every single church or congregation of believers today. The church is the lampstand. That's what we are. Notice we're not the light. We're not the light. We're not the lamp. We are the lamp stand, according to this, which is to hold up the light, to declare the light, to let the light be seen. It is Christ who is the light, and we are lampstands. That says so much about our purpose, if you think about it. Our task, our calling. A lampstand, of course, is placed upon a, uh, an area where a light, a lamp, a candle, can be lifted up and light the whole room. That's the idea. So that's our job to lift up or exalt Christ before the world. Okay. In this letter to the church of Ephesus, Christ says he has seen much to praise, but he's also seen some things to criticize to be concerned with. Revelations 2 and verse 2, it says, I know thy works, this is again Jesus speaking, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. The Lord praises the Ephesian Christians here 
for their hard work, their hard work in the gospel, their hard work of the kingdom. They boldly proclaimed the good news of the gospel, even if it meant suffering. Don't forget, they lived in a society that said Caesar is Lord. And their proclamation of Jesus is Lord could be very troubling for them, of course. Could cost them even their life. So the Lord commends the church of Ephesus for its patience, for its perseverance. The perseverance is endurance. It means they didn't give up. They kept on. They had to endure malicious slander from the unbelieving Jews living there in Ephesus. Not, uh, Acts 19 and verse 9. They had to endure persecution from the craftsmen who made these statues of the goddess Diana. Acts 19.23 Yet they never quit on their faith and on their hope. So the Lord further praises the Ephesian church. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. You see, the Ephesian church did not tolerate, it didn't bear with, it didn't endure, it does not put up with wicked men. It's probably fair to say it was a strong church. Described in our passage, these wicked men are described as false prophets. This church didn't allow herself to be led astray by these false prophets. It could have been perhaps someone coming in declaring that you still need to obey certain parts of the old law. Could have been as simple as that. Could have been other doctrines. But the Ephesian church and its leadership stood up to that. They stood strong. They were well praised in the eyes of Jesus for their commitment to that. In the city and in the church, there were always people coming and going because of the importance of Ephesus. Of course, it's crucial location for world trade, being a port city. Some of those who came to the church falsely claimed to be apostles. And so they put them to the test. Just gives you a little bit of a picture of the church at Ephesus. Their strength, what they were up against, and they remained faithful on that. Knowing, knowing this, the Apostle Paul urged the Ephesian elders to be on your guard, Acts 20, 31. And the Apostle John could say, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Jesus said, by their fruits you will recognize them. You'll know them. And so the Ephesian church here, they listened to this advice. And they put it into practice. They kept up their guard. They tested those who called themselves apostles. And they found them to be false. The Ephesian church had an eye and an ear for the truth. For right. For sound doctrine. That was the church at Ephesus. It was a very discerning church. 
That's not all the praise that Christ gave him. Revelation 2 and verse 6, as we continue on, he says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. <clears throat> there's not a lot known about the Nicolaitans. I dug, there's a lot of suppositions, there's a lot of thoughts and opinions. Not a whole lot's known other than what we read about here, but this much we know, the Nicolaitans were a heretical Christian sect who compromised with the pagan society in which they lived. That's what they did. What was their compromise? Well, I already mentioned that the temple of Diana uh, was located in here in Ephesus. This made Ephesus a major center of pagan worship. So this is what's going on outside the church. This is their society. Major. Two elements of, of pagan worship of Diana that the Nicolaitans apparently adopted and was, uh, was these two. The eating at pagan feast of meat sacrificed to idol gods and sexual immorality. That was what apparently they were caught up in. Let's see. I want you to note that these were the two things that the apostles addressed specifically when they called together a meeting with the elders in Jerusalem and expressly warned the Gentile Christians not to engage in. Acts 15. The Nicolaitans ignored this doctrine and they compromised totally here with the pagan ways of the city of Ephesus. And so the Ephesian church here is praised by the Lord for hating these practices of the Nicolaitans. <coughs> Pardon me. The Ephesian church puts a strong emphasis on holy, pure, and clean living, clean life. And so in praising the Ephesian church for its hard work, its right doctrine, its holy life, we back up to verse 3 again. The Lord also said this, And has borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and has not fainted. All that they were up against. It, it is kind of mind-boggling, maybe even overwhelming to think about what they must have been up against, what they daily were dealing with in society, and yet they received the praise of the Lord. That's, that's a big deal in my mind. That's a big thing. The Lord is praising them for their hard work and their commitment to Him. That in spite of all that's going on, the false apostles, people coming in trying to tear the church down, they stood strong. That was a positive. He said, essentially, you have not fainted. You've not grown weary. You know, after a while, it is so easy to stop trying and fighting and working as hard as you can for the gospel and kingdom. It, it's very easy to just become complacent, to get to a spot where maybe you're tired. I'm tired of fighting the same battle, so to speak. 
we get a little comfortable. We get cushioned pews, <laughs> you know, make it a little easier on us. These could use more cushion, I think. <laughs> you know, it'd be real easy to fall into that trap. The Ephesian brethren didn't. They didn't do that. And I'm sure that as the Lord walks among us, and I, my personal opinion is I believe He does. He walks among His churches. He probably has things to say about our faithfulness versus, uh, or not versus, but also other congregations. As we are lampstands to, to hold up the light of Christ to a lost and dying world. What would Jesus say about us? I'm sure that as the Lord walks among us, He could say about us some things that He says about the, the Ephesus or the Ephesian brethren here. Like the Ephesian church. It's evident to me in the time that I've been here that there's a lot of hard work that goes on for the gospel and for the kingdom here. And that's evident. Not to boast, it's not about that, but we can point to many works of the brethren here and the many willing servants who unselfishly assist this congregation in so many ways. We've had a lot of help. We can point to our emphasis on sound doctrine. I believe that's important to the church here. I pray that we are known for our commitment to the Holy Scriptures, for our guidance and doctrines of the Lord. Like the Ephesian church, I believe wholeheartedly that we'll quickly discern false teaching. Somebody comes in and is trying to sway the congregation to believe something that just simply is not true. Now, you sit there and ask, how could that happen? How could that happen? People could come in here and sway a whole congregation. Let me tell you something. You've got droves of people that follow after false doctrine all the time. All the time. I mean, my mind goes to just crazy stuff that I've seen. You've seen. You've, you've seen in the news, if nothing else. Um cults that can amazingly have people do things that you would go there's no way but some of these people that have gotten caught up in it it would be easy to discount them and just say yeah but they were a little out there anyway they were a little wacko or whatever really some of these people have come out and since then they don't appear very wacko they just believed a lie Brethren, it can happen. It can happen anywhere. It can happen anytime. That's why we have the leadership that we do. That's why we have the engagement that we do in this congregation. We're not going to permit false teaching. I don't believe it. I've actually seen it in my short life. I'm short. That's why I said that. <laughs> It happened in the church where people were literally trying to read a letter and sway people to a certain idea in the middle of the congregation 
in the middle of a service. Wasn't right. Should have never happened. He was instructed not to do it. He did it anyway, and the elders took care of it. They just had to take care of it. It is not a fun job, <laughs> but they had to deal with it. It happens. And so I say that primarily just as a caution to be on your guard and be thankful for the leaders that we have. Be thankful for the elders. Um, appreciate them. Furthermore, like the Ephesian congregation, the church today cannot permit wicked deeds. Those who persist in wickedness will be addressed for the sake of their souls. I believe that. I believe the elders will do that. I believe some other brethren will do that if there's a concern. Should they? Let me tell you something. The question that was asked so many years ago, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. We should have accountability to each other and allow that interaction to be able to overcome the wickedness in this world or that we've become succumbed to. Um, we also teach about holy living. Living a pure and clean life. This is something I aspire to and still struggle with. It's a challenge in this world. But I think it can be said of us what was said of Ephesus. They have not grown weary. Here we are today lifting up Jesus. Preaching His name and, and the things that He has done and what He means to us. And hopefully we do that when we go outside these four walls. Brethren, this must continue. But, so much for the praise. He also had some things to say that were hard for them to accept, I'm sure. The Christ who walks among the golden candlesticks, or golden lampstands, the Christ who knows the works done by His church. He knows. He knows. Can look into our hearts and see what is really there. Jesus looked at the church of Ephesus and said this, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. <clears throat> First love. You know, there are two distinct ideas regarding this first love. First, some hold that this is talking about their lack of love for Jesus. But in the context, he's commending them for their hard work, their dedication, um, that type of thing. It's hard to fit that into the context for me. So I'm going to suggest to you another, and it's a pretty common view also. <clears throat> number two many commentators as well as versions of the Bible will interpret this to mean they had lost the love that they had at the beginning the first love the, the loving attitude their loving nature their interaction and fellowship one with another 
the love that they had for their brethren that they had at the beginning. He says that they have lost it. I'm going to present it to you that that's uh, more likely the case, in my opinion. And because I think it fits into the context better as we talk about this. Why does he caution them about that? You've left the love that you had at the beginning. You've left your first love. You know, when they were first formed, the church at Ephesus, they were known for that love. They were known for it. The Apostle Paul could write them in Ephesians 1 and 15. I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love. That's what Paul wrote about them. They were known for their love. They had love for the brethren. They had love for mankind. Love for God, of course. They were known for it. But now, when this letter is written uh, as recorded in Revelation here, chapter 2, <coughs> it's some 25, 30 years at least later. Some would argue it could be 40, 50, 60 years. Not going to dispute that. I don't really know the timetable. It's at least 25, 30 years later. Ephesus is receiving this message that they've lost their first love. They've lost the love that they had at the beginning. With pain and sorrow in his heart, Jesus is telling them this. What a devastating thing to say. But was it true? Well, it came from Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to suggest to you it was definitely true. And the Ephesians needed to listen to this. They need to pay attention. <clears throat> the Ephesian church has and shows little or no love. Jesus says they've forsaken their first love. They've set it aside. They have let go of this type of love that they had. Was it for God? Was it for people? Was it for brethren? Was it for the strangers? Maybe some of all? What happened? I want to I just want to ask some questions. How did this sad state of affairs come about? As already mentioned, one of the strong points of the Ephesian church was their emphasis on sound doctrine, uh, correct teaching, lack of tolerance of false apostles. How could you be so strong in these areas and at the same time be told you've lost the love that you had in the beginning? Listen, side note, I guess. Love is one of the marks of the true Christ, of true Christianity and the true church. It is. Let's refresh our minds real quick what Paul said about love to the Corinthian brethren. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. I'm just a bunch of noise is all I am. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries 
in all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, I am nothing. It profits me nothing, he says. There's no benefit without love. Jesus said, John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. If there was anything in what the lampstand was doing in proclaiming Christ, it was proclaiming their love. Their love for the Lord, their love for each other, brethren, the love of mankind, the love for the souls of man. Our love should be broadcast completely and always, everywhere. The church is known for it. You know what he didn't say? The church is known for their sound doctrine. A sound doctrine is important. But that's not what the church is going to be known for out in the world. They're known for the love that they have one for another. It's simply not possible to shine the light of Christ and not love like Christ. So Jesus appeals to the Ephesian church here to return to her love that she had in the beginning. Return to her first love. Verse 5. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. You see, the church's first love is pictured as something elevated, as height. In its beginning, the church was flying high, so to speak. I know that's a bad analogy, but that's the idea. They're lifted up. They're praised for their work and what they did. By now, or but now, it is seen as having fallen from those heights. And Jesus says, repent. Repent. Make a change. It means to turn around, to change direction. So there's still hope for Ephesus, right? There's still hope. They just need to turn around. They need to renew themselves in the first love that they had. That that they had in the beginning. But then comes the warning. A terrible, frightening warning. If you do not repent, if you do not turn around, if you do not change direction, if you do not return to the basic fundamental principles of love, says Jesus, He says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. 
the congregation. I will come and remove the lampstand or the candlestick from its place. That's a humbling and sobering thought. To remove the lampstand is to remove the congregation. Because remember, the lampstand represented the congregations, the churches at these various locations. If the church at Ephesus does not return to their first love, it will be done away with. It's a sobering thought to me to read those words. I want to ask a couple of questions. A few more questions. Tell me, where is the church of Ephesus today? may seem a little silly to consider that, but where is the church today? If you take it in its most liberal means to say it still existed around 400 A.D. or so, they're having this council, well, I think that was 250, whatever it was, but two to 400 years A.D., it still existed somewhat. Maybe not in all truth, I don't know. But it was around. Where is it today? I can tell you it's no more. It's not there. And I'll tell you why I say that here in just a moment. Is there a segment? Is there somebody? Is there something? I can't speak for that. But the church as we knew it, the church at Ephesus, it's not there. It's been destroyed. Which leads us to suppose that they didn't listen to the warning, perhaps. What happened? Well, before we go any further there, we can't look at the church at Ephesus without taking a closer look at ourselves. Here's what I mean. We need to ask, has our love grown cold? Has it? Now, I don't see that. I certainly hope it hasn't. Individually, there may be somebody struggling with that. As a whole, I don't see that. But it's a fair question. Because if we can receive some of the praise from the Lord, as Ephesus did, we need to consider this side of the equation. Does Christ criticize us too? Does he who holds the seven stars and walks among the lampstands, have reason to tell us to also repent and return to the love that we had at the beginning. <clears throat> this is just a, a matter of fact in the history of my life. But I've been a part of three startup congregations in my life. Been a part of it. One of them is no more. Another one is almost no more. I mean, it's just trying to keep the doors open. One is still doing fairly well. Hopefully that will continue. But it's just an observation of what I've experienced in my life. But let me tell you what I've noticed. When a church first starts, everyone's full of enthusiasm. It's an exciting time. It is. 
And boy, everybody is on fire. There seems to be so much love, unity, peace, fellowship in the body. But after several years, <clears throat> when the next generation or two take the rein, so to speak, that's when you begin to see it's often a different story. Much of the enthusiasm's gone. There's no more love and unity. Fellowship. Not even peace. <laughs> and that's a sad testimony if that happens. Now I ask that in relation to us, this church. Can somebody tell me when this congregation was started? In the 30s, 40s or something? Long time ago. And... In the scope of things, I believe we're thriving. I believe we're at a point that could be described like a new congregation. The only reason that happens is your work, your love, your fellowship, your patience, endurance, the peace that we maintain, that we're able to be here today and continue but let me tell you something. In 25, 30 years, about the same time frame from when Paul addressed the, the church at Ephesus and then Jesus addressed Ephesus, in another 25, 30 years, it could completely be different here. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. And that's up to us. That's up to you and me. So I want to ask a couple of questions again. I keep saying that. Why are you here? Because you love the Lord? Or just out of habit? It's just what we do. This congregation has given generously to those who had need. Why do you give so generously? Because you have love for those that had need? Or just because it's what I'm supposed to do? Fair questions? The congregation here supports evangelism very strongly. And I applaud that. I think that's awesome. But why do we do it? Just because it's the thing to do? Or because we love the work of the church? We have a heart for it and a desire to, to see the souls of men saved. This congregation is rooted in doing our best to follow the New Testament doctrines for our rules of moral conduct and our practice. Why? Out of our love for Christ? Or because that's just what we do. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Is our heart in it? Is it because we genuinely care? I believe it is. I know it is. I know too many of you to think anything else. But don't let that slip. Because let me tell you something. It happened to the Ephesians. It happened to the church there. It can happen to us. So in conclusion... The end of the church at Ephesus. What happened? 
<clears throat> well, it's situated, by the way, in Turkey. I didn't say that. Modern-day Turkey today. All seven of these churches are. 99.8% of all that region is Muslim. Did you hear that? 99.8% today. That leaves 0.2% for any other religion, including Christians. There might be some there. I'm confident maybe there is. But that's the situation at Ephesus. It's all Muslim today. Look, God sometimes seems to fulfill prophecies in ways we cannot tell until after the fact. I mean, I don't know exactly what to think of it. But in the case of Ephesus, where John wrote, For the Lord, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. What happened is astounding. Culturally, geographically, historically, it's amazing that the church could have such a prominence in its community, in its region at the time, to be nothing today. First of all, let's not let that happen here. <laughs> let's not let that happen. No matter the culture around us, we still proclaim, we still are confident on the Word of God guiding us, and we still love. We love each other. We love the Lord. And we don't let go of that. Currently, Ephesus... As I understand it, I haven't been there, like I said. I would love to. <clears throat> Ephesus itself today is really just a bunch of partially excavated ancient ruins with two large parking lots, some souvenir stands, and apparently a camel for tourists to ride. There's <laughs> just nothing there. The city's gone. Let me tell you something. They're no longer even a port city. They are now four or five miles away from the water. Because what happened, one of the rivers coming in over time built up a bunch of silt. It just built up. And it moved further out into the water. And the city now can't be a port city anyway if it were viable. That's the state of Ephesus today. Not just the church, but the city. It's gone. Revelation 2 and verse 7. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Is there hope? If we begin decline, is there still hope? Yes. We overcome. We repent. We grab a hold of that love that we had at the beginning. 
that sets us apart from anybody else in this world as Christians. Our love that we have for each other. The Lord praises us. He's well pleased when we work hard for the gospel, for the kingdom, when we're doctrinally pure, when we live holy lives. But more importantly, the Spirit also tells us that the Lord wants us to be filled with His love. His love. Love for God, love for each other, love for our fellow man. The message of the Lord is not only for Ephesus and the other six churches here that we're going to at some time dig into, but it's for us today. We can take a lesson from Ephesus if we're of a heart to do so. I hope you are. That's the sermon for this morning. I appreciate your kind attention and listening to this raspy, horrible voice. We've not talked first principles, although we could. I'm not going to take the time at this moment. But if you're curious about it, or you know you've already been instructed, you've been taught the gospel, but you've not yet responded, please know the Savior's hands are not too short to reach out and grab hold of you and offer you His help in life beginning today. If you're not a Christian, be buried with Him in baptism today. Be buried with Him and rise with Him to walk a new life. It's possible, and it's not only possible, it's a reality, and it's what Jesus has done for you. Come while we stand and sing this song.